Tim mentioned about our uh, Good Friday service, the Tenebrae service that is uh, coming up on uh, on April, uh, excuse me, March 30th. I think that's going to be something that is really actually a pretty cool thing to do. Uh, as he mentioned, it's called the uh, the service of shadows, and what it does is it reminds us that Good Friday only became Good Friday on Sunday. Does that make sense? Because on Good Friday, before Sunday, before Resurrection Sunday, it was Bad Friday. It was Dark Friday. And so what that service is designed to do is to prepare us and to propel us into anticipation of the resurrection. To help us sort of experience what the disciples were feeling as everything kind of went dark, so to speak. And so I've asked two or three people to, to, to volunteer to read, and they have said they would. It's going to be a great service, but I want you to go ahead and be preparing yourself now because we have to do something that our church is not good at doing, and that is not talking. We're really good at talking to one another, and we're really good at fellowshipping. So as you come to that service, and as you're preparing to come to that service throughout the day, Kind of be preparing yourself. Maybe read through the, the events of, of, of Good Friday before you get here because we want to not break the reverie of that day. So when we end, as we go through the readings, and we, we're going to sing some more somber type, type hymns and songs, and as we read kind of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, and as each candle goes out, it's just another reminder that the disciples and Jesus were plunged further and further into that darkness, okay? And as they left the cross, as Jesus' body was taken down, they're in, they're, I mean, they're having their, their dark night of the soul, so to speak. And it's designed to help us sort of experience that same, that same emotion, those same feelings that the disciples were feeling. And so it'll release... You know, it, hopefully it will release those kinds of things and those thoughts, and as the lights go out, and finally as the, the Christ candle goes out, we'll just dismiss quietly. And so we'll ask that you exit the building without speaking. Now, if you just can't, can't take it anymore and you've got to let it out, wait till you get to the parking lot. But also, don't be offended if somebody you're trying to talk to does not want to talk and they just go and get in their car because they're trying to, to keep the, the reverie. But I think it's really, really going to be a, an emotional service. I think it's going to be powerful. And I think it's really going to leave us with the, man, I cannot wait for Sunday to get here. I can't wait until 7 o'clock sunrise service because I need to hear about the resurrection. I need to hear some good news. So I think it's going to be really awesome. And I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and I think it's just really, really going to be a, a cool thing. You know, normally, we don't like the word imitation, right? For the most part, that is not a word that, that we, we like because when we hear the word imitation, we think cheap knockoff. You know, we think lesser quality, cheaply made, not quite as good. You know, I think of uh, imitation leather. Anybody like that? Now, I know pleather is kind of a thing, but... Who realistically prefers imitation leather to real leather? Anybody? Yeah, not many people, right? Um, we don't like it. You know, imitation wood. There is a difference between a, a piece of furniture 
that is made from real wood and a piece of furniture like the, the top of that little lectern over there that is not real wood. That's a kind of that, that particle board. You know what I'm saying? That is an imitation of, of real wood, right? And so we think of these, these imitation things as not quite as good. But it's not just wood and, and leather. Think of food. There's food imitators, okay? I mean, imitation crab? Come on. Who wants to eat imitation crab? I mean, why would you? Just don't eat crab altogether. I mean, just don't eat anything if it comes to imitation crab. And who is tofu kidding? You know? I mean, they make tofu taste like meat. Why not just eat the meat? You know? Nobody wants to eat tofu because it's an imitator. Skim milk is just lying. It is water lying about trying to be milk. Okay? I have said that for years. I believe it. It is a farce. It is not welcomed in my house. Okay? It is a cheap imitator. I'm sorry if you like skim milk, but hey, you've got a lying product in your house, okay? It is an imitation of the real thing. For the most part, we don't like imitation stuff, right? When I was in high school, I had this job. I worked at a, uh, at a local restaurant outside the Atlanta area. And the owner of this restaurant, he had a very particular walk, very particular mannerisms, the way he kind of spoke. He, you know, he talked with his hands a lot. It was really annoying, uh, you know, watch people talk with their hands. It just kind of drives me crazy that people do that, right? You know, you guys don't know anybody that does that. But he had these, you know, just these peculiar things, and I got to where I could imitate him pretty well. Okay, and so we're kind of sort of coming to the end of our shift, and we're kind of restocking things so that the, uh, the, the evening and night crew, when they come in, they don't have to go searching for things. You know, the, the salad dressings have all been restocked, and everything is kind of where it's supposed to be. And at the end of our shift, he would come in and kind of tell us the, what we needed to do. And, you know, we're kind of standing around. And so I start imitating my boss. And I do the walk, and I've got the voice, and I'm giving out the commands when he walked around the corner, and I'm imitating him. And that led to a conversation that was not a lot of fun. Okay? He didn't appreciate it. He told me that. He said, hey, the imitation is good, but I really don't appreciate it. Please don't do it anymore. And so I didn't. But sometimes, sometimes imitation can be a good thing. Right? Because probably all of us here can think of some mentor or coach. Maybe it was a, uh, a parent. Maybe it was a, a dear friend. You know, maybe you had a teacher that, you know, inspired you, that really connected with you, that told you that you mattered when maybe nobody else did. And, and, and you kind of look to them as an example, and you try to kind of imitate how they live their life. You know, when I was a kid, and I, I did a, a lot of speaking, uh, which is kind of a weird thing for a kid to be speaking at these places, but, you know, I had some friends that were older than me, and watching their example, I tried to imitate what they did, and it sort of gave me the confidence to do what it is that I do now, as I tried to, to imitate those guys, and I looked up to those guys. Other times, there are people that we don't need to imitate, right? People that are into to habits that can lead to, to destruction, okay? Uh, people that are, are caught up into in, in pornography, both 
men and women. Okay? People that have substance abuse issues and things like that, we don't need to try to imitate them. Sometimes imitation is not a good thing, but there are other times when imitation is exactly the thing that we need. Today, as we, we pick up our story, as we pick up the, the second part of, of martyr, we're going to see that imitation is a good thing, but that sometimes this good thing, this good imitation, can have some pretty serious, pretty serious consequences. You remember last week, as we began reading about Stephen, he is, he's not an apostle, he's just this servant of God in the new church there in Jerusalem, and they end up selecting him, and remember Timon and Pumbaa and some of those others, as the first deacons. Stephen is, is full of the Holy Spirit. He's doing all of these great signs and great wonders, and eventually it arouses jealousy to the point that they drag him before the Sanhedrin. They get some false witnesses. They trump up all these charges, and that's kind of where we left things last week at the end of Martyr Part 1. As we get to the beginning of Chapter 7, Today, the high priest opens up with a question, and he says, Are these things true? Are the things that these people, these false witnesses, are the things that they have been saying about you, are they true? Well, what are those things? Well, very quickly, they said that, that he spoke out against Moses. And he spoke against God, so he's blaspheming that he spoke against the law that Moses handed down, you know, the traditions of the people, the way they lived their very lives. They said that he spoke against the, the temple and said that Jesus would one day destroy the place and change the customs of Moses. And that, that, that talk against the temple, I think, is what is going to cause him the biggest kinds of problems. So they say, are these things true? Now, I think he probably easily could have waved those things off and said, no, I didn't say those things. But instead, what Stephen does is he recognizes that we need to set the record straight. We need to make sure that we get our story correct. And so in verse 1 and 2, he says, Brothers and fathers listen. And it's right here that Stephen launches into, into some have called it a defense, some have called it a, a sermon, but he doesn't really answer these charges that have been levied against him directly. And so he makes this speech that's made up of these, these several epics that we know and are familiar with. Because what he does is he begins to walk the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, through the story. And so he goes all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where you have Abram just kind of hanging out in the desert, and God taps him on the shoulder and says, I have a job for you. I'm going to build a nation through you. I'm going to give you a land. It's going to be your dwelling place, and you're going to inhabit it, and you're going to be the father of nations. But you remember the problem. Abraham was childless, and he was old, and he did not have a speck of land to his name. And so he begins walking them through that story. 
and he shows them the land, the, the, the promised land. And eventually his son Isaac is born, and it begins the fulfillment of the promises of God. And then Isaac has his son Jacob. And so we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, we sort of hear about those guys when you hear about the, uh, the God of our forefathers. The ones that come to mind are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are kind of the, the main ones. But then he continues through the story. He doesn't stop there. He begins to talk about Joseph and how Joseph, who was kind of hated by his brothers, was sold into Egyptian slavery. And so he's carried off into slavery, but God is with him, and God raises him up and gets him all the way to second in command. Meanwhile, there's a famine all over the place, but Jacob, his dad, has heard that there's somebody down in Egypt who's got a bunch of grain, and you can go down there and buy it. And they get down there, and lo and behold, who do they find? Joseph. God has been with him, God's protected him, God has used him, and God is protecting his people through, through Joseph. God is watching over them, and he's reminding, of, reminding them of this throughout this, this first epic. And then he gets into the longest part of his speech where he starts talking about Moses. And this is really important because one of the charges against him is that he's been speaking against Moses. That he doesn't care anything about Moses and that he wants to change the customs of Moses. But he goes all the way back and he reminds him that Moses was born as a slave. But that he was chosen. When all the Hebrews had to throw out their baby boys, Moses was rescued. He was drawn out of water. Moses, that's what that means. And that he was raised, protected, just like Joseph was, protected from annihilation. And he was raised in the Pharaoh's own house. But then one day he was out walking around, remember this story? And he comes a, a, across an Egyptian taskmaster who is abusing one of his fellow Hebrews. And his, his Hebrewness flares up for the first time and he steps in and he kills that Egyptian and he buries him right there in the sand. And he's feeling good. He has that first sense of calling in his life. First sense of, I can lead these people. The next day, he's walking along, and he sees two of his fellow Hebrews fighting, and he's going to step in. He's going to be the mediator. He's going to bring peace. And they say, hey, what are you going to do? You're going to kill us, bury us in the sand like you did with that guy yesterday? They reject his leadership. They don't want it. Moses, fearful of his life, flees out into the desert, where eventually he has an encounter with God at the burning bush. And it's there that God lays out this plan of what he's going to do. You're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to go to the most powerful man in the world. You're going to tell him that I am God. And I don't care about all his other gods. And he's going to unleash these ten plagues that are a direct shot at all of Egypt's gods. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh God, is going to be proclaimed. This is the story that Stephen is walking them through. And then finally he kind of moves into this, this next epic. And it's where Israel is out of captivity. Moses has led them out into the desert. Moses is up on Mount Sinai and he's hanging out with God and he's getting the Ten Commandments. Meanwhile, hanging out down there in the valley are the Israelites with Moses' older brother, Aaron, and they stop believing in Moses. They stop believing in God. And they say, give us a God. They create this golden calf. And they rebel against God. 
And then he dials it in even more. And he begins to talk about David. And when he begins to talk about David, he begins to talk about what I think is the heart of the matter for these religious leaders. Look at, uh, look around verse 46. They had the command of Moses. They said they had it all the way up till the days of David. Then verse 46, he being David, found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon, rather, who built a house for him. But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all of these things? You see, here's the thing. The temple was viewed by the religious leaders as the most holy place on earth. You know that? It's considered to be the most holy place on earth by the Hebrews. But here's the thing. God never asked for a temple. God never commissioned a temple. He commissioned a tabernacle. A temporary dwelling place that could be picked up and, and moved and set down. And David comes to God and says, hey God, I want to build you this house. I was like, eh, you know, you can't, the house can't really hold me. You know, I can't be contained to, can't be contained to, to one place. And you see, I think what Stephen is doing is he is laying a sharp, an abiding criticism on these religious leaders because they think everything in the world, all of God is contained in this, in this, this one place. But he is reminding them, hey, look, God can't be held by this place. God can't be held by this place that you've got all of this stock invested in. Now then watch what he says in verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit, as your ancestors did. You also do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you have not That's a pretty sharp rebuke, is it not? He says, you had all of this, and you've missed everything. You have misunderstood the whole story. That's why he walked them through this all the way at the beginning. They said, basically, Stephen doesn't care about this stuff. Stephen says, oh, yes, I do. Here's how the story really should be told. Because you're missing a huge component that God is not contained in this house and that you have killed Everybody who's tried to show you something different, you killed the one who talked about Jesus, and you even killed Jesus. You have missed, you have missed everything. Now then watch verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Remember last week? at the beginning of uh, Martyr chapter, uh, Part 1. We talked about that word enraged. 
is the same word here that you find back in chapter 5, verse 33. It's the same emotion that the religious leaders were feeling as Peter stood up and he testified and they were told not to speak and preach and teach in the name of God, in the name of Jesus at the temple. And Peter said, hey, you do what you got to do. We're going to obey God rather than men. And it said they were enraged. Do you remember what that word means? It means to be so angry with somebody that you want to cut them in half with a saw. The religious leaders are so mad that they want to kill somebody. Okay? Just in case we miss that. The religious leaders, the church people, not really church, but God's people are so angry at, at Peter and the apostles here, but now it's at Stephen, that they want to and are willing to commit murder. Do you see that? They are so enraged at them. And, and I'm, as I've thought about this text more and more, I'm not so sure that it's the stuff about Jesus that's got them so upset. Because the religious leaders don't really care about Jesus. They don't believe he's the Messiah. As a matter of fact, Gamaliel loaded him into a, a group with a bunch of other criminals who were, were killed, right? So I don't think it's really the stuff about Jesus that's really got them so upset. I think it's the stuff that has to do with the temple. I think that's what it is that has gotten them so enraged. Verse 55 says Stephen full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God Luke is painting this this very vivid picture for us and the reason he is doing this the reason he's given us so much detail is because there is a point that he's trying to make you see to the people the temple was supposed to be the place where heaven and earth meet but Stephen's speech and what is about to happen to Stephen is demonstrating that heaven and earth come together in Jesus and his followers. In other words, heaven and earth meet where there is a Christ-centered community. Let that sit down on you for just a second. What's our aim this year to become? Christ-centered community. Do you realize as we gather as that community, we are the place where heaven and earth meet? Remember when Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? That means that things on earth are not as they are in heaven. Who is tasked with that responsibility of bringing heaven to earth. The Christ-centered community, us. We are the place where heaven and earth meet. We have the ability to bring heaven into somebody's life. Somebody who is hurting, somebody who is suffering, somebody who is experiencing oppression and injustice. We are the ones who bring that stuff to an end. We, as the community of Christ, as we serve 
one another and serve others outside of us, we bring heaven and earth together because we are a gathered people. And I think that right there is what set them off, what sent them over the edge. Because in their mind, it's all about the temple. The temple is the most important thing. But Stephen, he looks, he sees, he's, he's kind of given this snapshot, and he sees into heaven, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 56, he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And that's important. Because a lot of times we read about Jesus, and he's where? He's seated at the right hand of God. But as Stephen is making his testimony, making his defense, or whatever it is, Jesus is standing. He is standing as Stephen is about to be killed for his faith. The human court, the Sanhedrin, the human court has condemned him, but as Jesus stands, the heavenly court gives its approval. Jesus is standing as his witness before heaven's jury to give convincing testimony on behalf of his faithful servant, Stephen. He is standing, waiting to welcome Stephen into glory. Verse 57. Then they yelled at the top of their voices. They covered their ears, and together they rushed against him. Keep in mind who they is. Who is they? The religious leaders. They rushed against him. Verse 58. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named, say it with me, Saul. We'll talk more about him in just a second. Verse 59. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. After saying this, he died. It's pretty powerful. Stephen becomes the first martyr, someone to die for their faith. Stephen becomes the first martyr of the Christian church. Now, the people have been murdered for their faith before. We know that. Stephen said as much. You've killed the prophets. But Stephen is the first one to die post-resurrection. He is the first one to die in the church age, the age that we, that we live in now, the, the last days. And there's been thousands of others since then. What do we see about Stephen? What do we learn about Stephen? Well, it all goes back to that very first word that we talked about at the beginning, imitation. Stephen imitated Jesus. Jesus, when he was asked if he is the Messiah, said, yeah, it's as you say. Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, commits his spirit into the hands of God. Jesus, hanging on the cross, cries out to God, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they are doing. Stephen did all of those things. Did you see it? Stephen 
imitated Jesus. Here's how he did it. He confessed Christ before men. He said, I see the Son of Man standing. He's confessing Jesus. He also commits his spirit to the Lord as they are killing him. And then finally, as they are throwing rocks at him, at his head, with the intent of ending his life, his thought is not of himself. It's not rescue me, Lord. It's not save me. It's not make it end quick. His thoughts are on his enemies. And he's concerned about their soul. And he says, Father, forgive them. Stephen. Stephen imitated Jesus in his death. That's a pretty powerful example, is it not? You probably see where I'm headed with this, right? But before we get there, let's, let's think about something. Who is standing there watching all of this happen? Saul. Saul is fixing to become a major character. Not just in the book of Acts, but for most of the rest of the New Testament. He's going to be the main writer of the majority of the New Testament. Okay? But yet it is Saul who is standing there. They're throwing, he's kind of like the coat holder guy, you know? But he is watching this happen. Stephen's act of calling for forgiveness, I think, was huge in the life of Saul. The, the, the deep logic of, of Saul's commission to be a witness to the risen Jesus, I don't think it was based on who he was. It wasn't his, his heritage as a, as a Hebrew of the, the tribe of Benjamin. It wasn't that he was this great Pharisee that was full of zeal. It wasn't even the fact that he was, was, a, was a Roman citizen and that afforded him certain rights. It was based on the fact that Saul was a forgiven man. In just two chapters, we're going to read of Saul's conversion. He's going to eventually take a Gentile name of Paul. He'll, he won't be known as his Hebrew name anymore, Saul. He's going to be changed. It's going to cause him a lot of problems. He's going to write about it even as he stands to testify for his own life against the government. He's going to tell the story of his life. And he's going to say, I am the one that put Peter to death, or that, that put the followers of Jesus to death. It is safe to say that there is no doubt that Stephen's gracious death impacted Paul deeply. Because later he would write this in Ephesians 5 1 and 2. He would say, Therefore, I want you to say the yellow with me, therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. It's going to signify a huge shift in the story. This, this chapter, just like I told you last week, not this chapter, this story of, of Stephen, this story of martyrdom, is a shift 
in this book. Because no longer is it going to be focused on Jerusalem and the Jews there because they clearly are not interested in it, so it's going to focus outward. Remember last week when I told you to go and compare Acts 1 verse 8 and 8 verse 1? Did anybody do that? Did you notice it? Did you notice the parallels? I'm not going to spoil it for you if you haven't done it yet, but take some time and do that. All of that, that, that prophecy from 1-8 is fixing to start happening. And we start reading about it in 8-1. So you have Saul standing there giving approval to Stephen's death. But it's a death that is going to deeply impact him. So that later on he's going to write, therefore be imitators of God. Being an imitator is not always a bad thing, is it? Being a poser is a bad thing. You know what I'm talking about? Acting like you're something that you're not, that's a poser. Like skim milk. Skim milk is a poser. And it's insulting. Let's just get that out there. In case you missed it, I don't like it. But a true poser is someone who calls themselves a Christian yet acts like they are not a Christian. You know what I'm saying? Another word for it is what? Hypocrite. But somebody who imitates Christ means they do the things of Christ, right? So what's our community connection? Imitate Jesus in everything you do. Imitate Jesus in everything you do. You love people. You serve people. You're humble. You operate with humility. Sometimes, you know, we, we hear about, and I heard somebody say something this week, about it. We, sometimes we sing about the fame of God and the name of of God, the fame in the name of God, and that's great. But I think what is more powerful than the fame of God and the fame of Jesus is the humility of God and the humility of Jesus. Because that's what you see in Scripture, right? Paul is going to write in Philippians saying that Jesus humbled himself became obedient to death, even death on, on a cross. Someone who imitates Jesus loves people, serves people. Someone who imitates Jesus is humble. An imitator of Jesus is someone who is willing to sacrifice for others. An imitator of Jesus is someone who loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. An imitator of Jesus bears their cross daily and is willing to lay down their lives for others, should it call for it. So how do you imitate? Confess Christ before men. Commit your spirit to the Lord. Ask God to forgive others. This is what it means to imitate Jesus in all we do. It's not easy. And as I said at the beginning, while some imitation is good, it can also have some pretty serious consequences. And Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't hide that fact. 
He says, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. The only reason somebody will hate us for following Jesus is if we are imitating Jesus. Does that make sense? If we are a true imitator, then yes, we will be hated for that, or we might be. If we're a poser, nobody cares about that because they know you don't really believe it. But someone who seeks to truly imitate Jesus risks being hated for what they believe. Imitate Jesus in all you do. Let's pray together. God, this is...